Good evening, church. Good to see you guys all out here tonight. It's been a while since I've been in Genesis, and so got to get some of these cobwebs off of my uh, Genesis preaching. But if you could, please turn to Genesis chapter 11, verses 27, all the way to chapter 12, verse 9. And the title of this sermon is Abram and the Magnitude of Salvation. And my prayer to the Lord is that I don't mess this one up. It is one of the most important texts, I think, in all of Scripture. So once you're there, if you're able to stand physically, um, please do uh, as I read the Scripture. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Starting at verse 27 of chapter 11, Moses writes this. He says, these are the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans, during his father Terah's lifetime. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai, and Nahor's wife named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've given us Genesis, that you've shown us the beginning of all things, and we were able to get through the first 11 chapters, and now we're, we're starting chapter 12, and oh Lord, there's just such amazing truth packed in here. So we pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see it, and ears to hear it, and hearts to receive it. I pray that you would remove me as much as possible in my bumbling foolishness uh, from this so that I don't mess up your text, or miscommunicate it in any way, Lord, but instead that your word would go forth in power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you'd inscribe your word on the hearts of your people, Lord, and if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that they would come to you and be saved today. And so, Lord, we pray all this, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. So I'm just going to start with a question. What is salvation? And I pose that question because most Christians answer this question in a woefully inadequate way. Most people will say that salvation is our soul being saved through the forgiveness of sins. And you might be thinking, well, that's what I thought it was. And that's not wrong, right? But that's only a tiny little part of salvation. 
Imagine if you had a toy robot and its batteries went dead and so it stopped working. But let's also say all the robot's wires melted, all the speakers for its cool sound effects short-circuited, all the light bulbs died out so its eyes can't light up and do all those cool stuff. If all you did was put in a new battery to the robot, have you saved it? Have you really fixed it? No, salvation is ultimately the restoration of all that was lost. Okay, now forgiveness of sins is part of that, right? And then we, let's go back to this robot for just a second. What if that robot, with all those other things being fixed, what if it only works in a little fortress that comes along with it? And so if you don't have the fortress to put the robot in, it's not going to work. Well, then even if you fix everything else, the little guy's got no place to live. And so even his fortress has to be restored, right? And I bring this up as an example because salvation works the same way. Salvation is not merely a response to sin. Salvation is a response to the entire curse, Okay, salvation is a response to the entire curse. And therefore, salvation is God overcoming the curse itself. Now, the curse includes sin. So, of course, that's part of salvation. Okay, but the curse is even bigger than sin. Now, the reason why I say all this is because our text this evening shows us God's salvation, and it ultimately shows us where things are going. And it shows this holistic salvation that really tackles the curse head on. And so for those who are avid note takers, let me tell you the point of the text up front. It's this. God will fix what humanity broke. God will fix what humanity broke. All of it. He's going to fix all of it. The whole curse. Question is, how does the text show this? Well, it shows this by God's calling of one man, Abram. God's calling of Abram shows how he's going to fix it all. You might not have realized that, but it does. Now, if you want to look at the call of Abraham and break it into even smaller pieces for note-taking, the call of Abram can be broken up in three ways in our text. The prelude to the call, the call itself, and the obedience to the call. That's what we're going to see in the text tonight. The prelude to the call, the call itself, and the obedience to the call. And not that I'm trying to rap or anything, but because this rhymes, the call reverses the fall, okay? And so that's what's happening here. We start to see the fall be turned back by the call. So anyway, that's what we're going to look at. Now, our text this evening is a huge pivot point in the book of Genesis. And I would say it's even more than just a pivot point in Genesis. This represents a seismic shift in all of history. See, if you're going to pinpoint when our text starts, that would mean the world existed in a state of fallenness for 2,000 years by the time this text happens. 2,000 years of history at this point. And it was in fallenness that whole time. And now, after 2,000 years of fallenness, God is going to do something huge. He's going to start to fulfill the promise he made way back in Genesis 3.15. Yes, this text has everything to do with Genesis 3.15, and I hope I'll be able to show that as we go further. But in order for us to get the gravity of this passage, I have to recap the entire book of Genesis. And I know you're like, he's kidding. No, I'm not. I'm going to recap the entire book of Genesis up to this point, but I will do it in a brief way. Because everything in our text this evening is countering everything in the first 11 chapters. Okay? And so I'm hoping to show that. So let me recap. God made everything in just one week. It was all perfect. And he called it very good. And then the pinnacle of all creation was us. He created humanity in his image. Adam, this perfect man, was placed in a perfect garden. And he was given two commands. Guard it and work it. Okay? Guard it and work it. And God made a covenant with him because in Genesis 2, there's a blessing and a cursing. 
which shows that's the language of covenants, right? The blessing is you can eat from all the trees except one. It's a lot of trees. The curse is you eat from that one, you're going to die, right? And so Adam working and guarding this perfect creation, this was a big job for even a perfect human. So God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. He creates a perfect helper for Adam, which was also a perfect human, and her name was Eve, male, female, right? And so all was well. But if God commanded Adam to guard the garden, then there was something out there that it needed guarding from, okay? And, you know, in in some translations it says keep the garden. It's the Hebrew word for guard, okay? He's guarding it. And that means there's a threat out there. Otherwise, why would Adam have to guard it? And so we know what that threat was. Sometime between the end of creation week and the start of chapter 3, Satan, who was a cherubim of God, rebelled against God and he turned evil. Okay, so could Adam successfully protect this garden from Satan? Yes. He was a perfect human made in God's image that was immortal. In a head-to-head fist fight, I think Adam would have made Satan look like an amateur boxer. He really would have. And so, how does Satan come in? Does he come in with a direct attack? No, he has to take a different approach. He possesses a creature, a serpent, and comes in and deceives. Deceives Eve. Adam wasn't deceived. He liked what he was hearing, right? And so he convinced them to rebel against God. That was brilliant, right? Because now they would change. Adam would lose the title deed to this perfect world. Humans would lose immortality. They would lose their closeness with God. We would now become frail. And with that, Satan would instantly become much stronger than this creature made in God's image. And then as we know, 1 John 5.19 says the whole world's now under Satan's sway. Okay, so in a sense, he kind of seized from Adam what was originally supposed to, to be ours, right? And now Satan's been running this world into the ground behind the scenes ever since. And so we know what happened. Adam and Eve fell for it. They fell for the trap. They sinned against God. And then we know that death entered the world. Sin entered the world. The curse entered the world. Now, this curse infected everything. Our physical bodies, even the whole physical universe is breaking down in entropy. Our souls are now evil. It's not like you have a good soul and an evil body. No, they're both jacked up, okay? They're both evil. And then on top of that, the entire creation descended into violence, okay? And by the time you get to Genesis 6, violence filled the whole earth. So at this point early in Genesis 3, God announces two curses. He announces a curse of the serpent, which is Satan, and he announces a curse of the ground to where the earth is now gonna rebel against us. The earth is gonna fight back. And so now it's hard for us even to make a living. Earth is dangerous, okay? Well, sin and death, moved beyond just Adam and Eve and their heart, the posture of the heart, we see that it manifests itself in worse ways because their firstborn son, Cain, murdered their secondborn son, Abel. This then leads to God giving a third curse. He cursed Cain for the murder and tells him to be a wanderer. But Cain rebels, and rather than wandering, he builds a city, which is the opposite of wandering. And then he names it for his son. Rather than obeying God, he wants to give his lineage a name. Right? So, doubling down on sin. Eventually, we then learn that the earth is filled with so much violence that God determines to judge all of humanity with a flood. And it didn't help that Genesis 6 tells us fallen angels were taking the daughters of men by force and impregnating them. And you had these violent offspring called the Nephilim. A lot of crazy stuff before the flood. Okay? Now, 
before the flood happened, Noah was born, okay? And his father said that Noah would, or from Noah would come a relief on the curse of the ground, meaning he expected that Noah was going to turn back the curse. He was wrong, okay? But I just am calling that to your attention. Now, that's the fourth time the word curse is mentioned in the Bible, is that just Noah's father's thinking Noah's going to end the curse of the earth. Anyway, the flood comes, Noah and his family, only eight people survive, okay? God then commands them to depart from the ark, and he then makes a covenant that sounded very much like the covenant with Adam, because this was a starting over of sorts. It was a new world. The old world was wiped out with water and cleansed. But even in this new world, sin and death are still inside us, right? Noah's own youngest son, Ham, shamefully gazed upon his dad's drunken nakedness. So then Noah curses Ham's son, Canaan, which makes me think Canaan probably had something to do with it, right? That's the fifth time the word curse is mentioned. Afterwards, Noah's sons and their descendants become the nations of the earth. God commanded them, spread out and fill the earth. But what did Genesis 11 tell us they do? Did they obey? They rebelled. And instead of spreading out, they pick a place in the east. Now, that word east is important. They pick a place in the east to build a tower up to heaven in order to make a name for themselves. Well, God stops that work, scatters them all over the world, and then confuses their languages. This is what led to the creation and existence of different ethnicities and languages. Now, that gets us up to where we're at. I would say that's a pretty rough first 2,000 years, right? Not a lot of redemptive stuff happening there. And in the midst of all of that, there really wasn't that that many signs of hope, if any, in those first 11 chapters, except Genesis 3.15, that promise. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. It seemed that for these 11 chapters, God let humanity do their thing, and then when things got bad enough, he judged them twice. And we saw that the word cursed in Hebrew appears five times after the fall at this point. There's a reason I'm saying that. Okay, we also see that the word bless only occurs once, and that's when God blessed Noah to get off the ship as Noah's entering into kind of a a new earth. The only other time we see bless before that is before the fall when God blesses Adam with the same type of uh, thing he blesses Noah with, right? Now, when it comes to the blessing of Noah, remember, it was a blessing of common grace, not special grace. And just in case you you don't know the difference, common grace is where God does good things for people in general. He gives us marriage, government, food. Uh, He gives rain for harvest time. None of us deserve that since we're all rebels, but he gives us everywhere. That's common grace. It doesn't save you, but it's nice, right? Special grace is the kind of grace where God saves people. He forgives their sin. He promises them eternal life. He starts to reverse the curse in them. Okay, at this point, no big blessings showing special grace. Has God saved some people? Absolutely, right? But no real like promise of special grace yet other than Genesis 3.15. So if there's the curse, there needs to be a blessing to overturn it, and it just hasn't come yet. Now, even though things were bad, though, I want us to look just really quickly back at Genesis 3.15. When the fall happened, here's what God says. He makes this huge promise Okay, it's a a threat to Satan and a promise to us. Genesis 3.15, to Satan, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, or your seed and her seed. He will strike your head 
and you will strike his heel. Now, there is so much wrapped up in that. It's huge. Scholars call it the Proto-Evangelium. I know you all speak Latin, so I'm not going to tell you what it means. No, Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. In that verse is the first statement of the gospel. See, what he's telling us is there's going to be hostility between Satan and Eve, but specifically between her seed and his seed, right? And God limits her seed, not to humanity in general, but to one person, because he says he will crush your head to Satan. This is going to be one guy. And this one guy, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Right? And so what this is telling us is this individual seed that comes from the woman will destroy Satan. And at the same time, in some sense, he'll be wounded by him. Now, what is peculiar about this is women don't have the seed. Men have the seed. Women got the eggs, right? But men have the seed. It's almost a nonsense statement to say the seed of the woman Unless there's going to be a woman without a man who one day has a baby. So even that is right here, okay? Right here, a male human that's going to come from a woman without a man, and he is going to destroy Satan. Now, Satan is the one who caused the curse in the first place. Sin and death came to humanity because of his cunning subterfuge. And so the destruction of Satan also implies something is going to be done about the curse itself. Now, this implication, if you remember some of the stuff I've preached in Genesis so far, this implication was not missed by humanity. They were expecting the seed right away. In fact, Eve, when she gives birth to Cain, for some reason thinks he is the seed. Okay, In your translations, she'll say, I've had a son with help from the Lord. That is not what the Hebrew says. That's supplied there because they're trying to make sense out of it. The Hebrew literally says, I've had a man, Yahweh. I've had a man, the Lord. She thought Cain was the Lord. Now, of course, it wasn't long before she realized little Cain was a sinner, okay? And so her next kid, Abel, she names him Abel, which means worthless. Poor kid, you know? So her hope's all up to here with Cain, and then he turns out to be a sinner. Oh, he's not the one. Then the next one comes out worthless, right? And then, of course, Cain kills Abel. It's just, it's just horrible. But her expectation was the seed's coming. And then Noah's dad Noah's born, he says, this one is going to end the curse of the earth. He's going, to relieve, he's going to relieve us of it. But Noah wasn't the one. Yeah, he was blameless in comparison to his generation. But then after the flood, he's roaming around naked and drunk, and he's clearly not the one. Okay? So despite the disappointment in the fact that none of these guys were the seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent and finally remove the curse of the ground... Genesis 5 still lets us know, though, God is keeping track to get us to that seed, right? Because you get this genealogy that takes us from Adam all the way down to Shem. It's only focusing on the lineage of those who would be in the line of that seed. I call it the royal lineage, okay? And then after that, after chapter 5 and we've got to Shem, we get the flood. After that, we get the Tower of Babel. And then at the end of Genesis 11, or close, like the middle of Genesis 11, we get another genealogy, and it picks right back up where that last one did. It starts with Shem, and it gets us to a man named Abram, right? Our text tonight is all about that man, Abram. In fact, the next 15 chapters deal only with Abram. Now, I want you to think about that. We've got through how many chapters? 11. Now we're getting to a man who takes 15 chapters. More space is put on the scroll for this man than the first 2,000 years of history. What does that tell you about his importance? He's really, really important. And so I would stand to guess that he's more important than many of us 
might at first realize. So anyway, all that buildup was necessary to see the significance of our text. I wanted to put that all out there because our text is specifically going to speak to all of that. See, we go back to Genesis 3.15. God made a promise, but he hasn't done anything yet at this point to directly show us that he was fulfilling that promise. All he's done is show us that it's still alive with the genealogy, but no action on his part to show that he is going to beat back the curse, that he's going to fulfill the promise. But it starts here. So let's get into it. This first part is the prelude to the call of Abram. It seems like a genealogy just like any other, and it is, okay? But it is a prelude to the call of Abram. It has to set the stage. I mean, we need to know who this guy is. We need to know where he came from. So the final part of chapter 11 is going to give us that. Verses 27 through 32, we get the start of a new toledot. It's not a made-up word. It's Hebrew. Okay. Remember, Genesis is arranged in 11 toledots. This is how Moses puts the book together. They're like his chapters, if you will. So he didn't have 50 chapters. He gives us 11 toledots. Okay. The word toledot just means generations or family records. So whenever you're reading Genesis... And you see a line that says, these are the family records of so-and-so, or these are the generations of so-and-so. That's a new toledot. That's a new section. And there's only 11 of them in the whole book of Genesis. Now, this one, this toledot, is 15 chapters. We had five toledots in the first 11 chapters, and then this one is going to stretch 15 chapters. So again, it's important. And by the way, just by a reminder, something I've said multiple times already in previous sermons, is Moses rolls into this toledot as if it's no different than the five that came before. And the reason why I bring that up is because there's a lot of people who say, I don't believe the first 11 chapters of Genesis are literal. I don't believe the earth is 6,000 years and that God created it like this. I think he used evolution, nah, 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 right? But then they say, once you get to chapter 12, that's when it's history. That's when we could trust it. And what I'm telling you is Moses wrote, writes the whole book as history. He writes it in Toledots, and there's no difference between this Toledot and the five that come before. He expects you to take the first five just as literally as he's asking you to take the sixth one, okay? So when people try to say the first 11 chapters are figurative, they've got no justification for that. They're just doing it because they believe what the world says about a bunch of stuff, and they shouldn't, right? I spent 36 sermons on the first 11 chapters bringing up science and history and all that just to show you that every word in it is true. It's not going to take me that long to get through the next 11 chapters, okay? But these first 11, they're attacked so much. I had to give a a much more slow and robust defense. But now we're just going to jump into the text like, like any other text. We'll be able to take bigger chunks. So that said, let's begin this sixth Toledot. Verse 27 begins it. It says, these are the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. So it tells us this is the Toledot of Terah, but I don't know if you noticed in the previous five, it'll name it after one guy, but then it's really about his immediate descendants. And so this is called the Toledot of Terah, but the whole thing's about Abraham. And that's in line with how the other ones work. Okay, so here's what it tells us about Terah. It tells us he fathered three people, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And then it adds this peculiar detail. It tells us the name of the son of Haran. doesn't tell us the name of Abram's kids or the other one's kids, uh, Nahor. It only tells us the name of Haran's kid. Why? Two reasons. First, the kid's name is Lot, 
and he is going to play a pretty big role in this Toledot. So this is foreshadowing that. Second reason is answered in verse 28. If you look at it, it says, Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans during his father Terah's lifetime. So Lot's dad dies before the story really starts. And so if he didn't say this now, you're not going to know who Lot is if he shows up chronologically, right? So that, that's why it mentions him there, just so you know that you know, his dad died before any of this ever started. Now, this also tells us that they originally lived in, quote, Ur of the Chaldeans. That's in southern Iraq. My buddy, he, had, he did two tours in Iraq for the war on terror. He got to visit Ur at least once and walked through all these houses taking pictures he might have walked through the house of Abraham's father because the ruins are still amazingly preserved. You're not allowed to go there anymore. All these terrorists. Anyway, but the the point is, he got to see it. He sent me these pictures. I was going to dig them out and show them to you, but then I said, this sermon's already too long, so I'm not. Um, But anyway, Abram growing up in Ur of the Chaldeans, that means he was living in one of the areas that Nimrod was you know, rampaging against people when he's trying to build his, his empire back up. Chronologically, if Nimrod and Peleg lived at the same time, which I told you they probably did, then young Abram would have been seeing all the crazy stuff Nimrod was doing. So it's just kind of interesting to keep that in mind. Now, in verses 29 and 30, it's going to tell us about the marriages of Abram and his brother Nahor. Again, building more characters, telling us the scene. These are real people, of course. It's building the scene, the prelude to the call. It says... Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai, and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. Now, there's really not a lot to say here. I mean, you might have noticed Nahor married his deceased brother's daughter, Milcah, so his niece. Why does this tell us this? It's because she's important. She's mentioned later as Rebecca's grandmother. Okay, so she plays a, a later role. Now, concerning, now we know nothing about Iska. I don't even know why Moses put her here. Ancient rabbis would be like, well, she's the same person as Sarai. No, she's not. She's not. She's a daughter of a completely different person. So, we don't know why she's there. Not going to say any more about that. But concerning Abram's wife, Sarai, it does tell us an important detail. She was unable to conceive. And so, Abram had no kids yet. That is a very important detail in light of the promise that God is going to make in a little bit, okay? And it's also a detail that leads to some pretty big blunders on the part of Abram and Sarai. If you've ever read the book of Genesis, they will foolishly take matters into their own hands, and it's going to cause a lot of problems. Another fact about this detail worth considering is it's super ironic, because do you know what Abram's name means in Hebrew? Exalted father. An exalted father with no kids. In the ancient world, that would be an embarrassment. And I could tell you, just like there's bullies now, there were bullies then. I'm pretty sure he never heard the end of this. Hey, exalted father, look at all the kids, you know. And uh, he's just like, I'll get you one day. No, I don't know if he said that. But the point is, this would have been an embarrassment. And it's mentioning, okay, it's mentioning the fact here that she's barren. There's a reason for that. So at this point, we're given the names of the folks who form a decent-sized family, We now know who they are, and so what about them? Verse 31 is now going to give us some important movement of some of these folks to really get us to where we need to be for one of history's biggest seismic events to happen. So verse 31 says this. It says, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, 
his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Okay, so Terah, the, the patriarch of the family, tells them, we're moving. And back then, if he says it, you move, right? So they're leaving from southern Iraq, and they're going up to this city called Haran, which is like right between Turkey and Syria. So they're going quite a distance north. Now, the original plan was for them to go there and then go down to Canaan, but they don't. Now, and just so you know, the city's named Haran, and you're like, but wasn't Abram's dead brother named Haran? Different Hebrew words. It's just in English, they're going to look the same. Just wanted to throw that out there. But anyhow, so they're in Haran. They're supposed to go to Canaan, but they don't, right? They stop in Haran. Terah stops there. Why? Well, little historical detail. Haran was the center of moon worship, okay? These were the moon worshipers, and the the moon god was named Sin. Not related to the English word Sin, um, but yeah, the moon god was named Sin. These were moon worshipers, and Terah's name actually means moon which indicates that the family's patron god was the moon god. So Abram grew up worshiping the moon, and his dad was named after that. And so it makes sense that when they get to Haran, which was the world's mega center where they worship just this, this moon god, makes sense that Terah stops there. He's like, we're not going to Canaan after all. We're going to stay here. And that's where he stays until he dies. So right away, this tells you a couple things. This tells you after the flood... People invented false gods, and they started worshiping them. They started worshiping the moon and the sun and all sorts of created things. This means paganism was normal. It was the norm. The one true God was mostly forgotten. Noah, if you do the math, was still alive, but he didn't have that much more time. Shem is going to have a little more time than Abram, actually. Um, So they would be the only two, probably, that still know the one true God. Otherwise, the rest of the world, they're pagan at this point. They're pagan. They've distorted the truth for a lie. Humanity universally abandoned God. This was a low point of history. And then we're introduced to this family that God is going to do something big with, and they're a bunch of moon-worshipping pagans. Isn't that interesting? Now, after Israel conquers the land of Canaan, many centuries after this, Joshua reminds the people of their pagan ancestor. Remember where God called you out of. Okay, so Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, it says this, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. Okay, that is Israel's ancestry. Okay, and honestly, there's no reason to assume that Abram himself was not a pagan at this point in his life, that he was an idolater just like the rest of them until a fateful moment comes and God calls him. And what that reminds us, just in terms of salvation, no one's born into salvation. You've got to be born again into salvation. Everyone has to encounter the Lord for themselves. So at this point, at least when we get to chapter 12, verse 1, Abram will finally encounter the one true God. But at this point, he hasn't. Well, it tells us in verse 32, his dad dies in Haran. It says, Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. So at this point, We now have the setting set. And if you want proof that God is a God that does miracles, then consider this. God is going to change the world by calling an old man out of a pagan family of moon worshipers in Syria. You would never expect that's where this big event is going to come from. So we've seen the prelude to the call. Now we get to like the really the center of the text. We see the call itself. And I believe what we see is marvelous 
Hopefully I'll be able to communicate it in a way where you'll see it as well. But we get the call of Abraham now in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. These first few verses begin with divine speech. It's just like the divine speech of Genesis 1. God speaks and his word is obeyed by creation itself. And and it's the same form as Genesis 8, where God then speaks, Noah, come out, and they come out. So God speaks, and guess what happens? When he speaks, obedience must happen, okay? And so if you think about it, the first time God speaks, it's to bring about the creation. The second time he speaks this way to Noah, it's to call him into a new creation. And what I'm telling you is this third time is keeping with the other two. God is meaning to move us through Abraham into a new creation. So he calls this pagan, and by doing so, he now makes him a worshiper of the one true God. And by the way, just for salvation purposes, this here is proof that God's call accomplishes its purpose. He calls those he chooses, and the call itself causes them to then come to him. I mean, think about it. The moment God speaks to Abram, you could assume he's not an idolater anymore. And in verse 4, it's going to tell us Abram obeyed God. See, God is making Abram into something new. And what we're going to witness here is not just the salvation of an individual, because God does that to all of us who believe, right? We're actually about to witness something much bigger. So look at verse 1 with me of chapter 12. We read this. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. So God commands him to leave his life as he knows it. For what? For a land I will show you. He's not even saying a land I'll give you. He's just saying a land I'll show you. Now, later in the chapter, he's going to say, I'm going to give it to you. But go to this land I'm going to show you. Now, given that he later promises it to him, you could read that intent into this. But I think it's fair to say that Abram's obedience is remarkable because God's asking him to get up and leave life as he knows it for just a land he's going to be shown. He doesn't even know what it's like yet. And I think we often overlook Abram's obedience here, I think we overlook what God's telling him to do. There was a huge cost to this, to what God's commanding him. This world back then was not like our world today. This was a patriarchal patriarchal world. Your life was entirely knit together with your clan. Not your nuclear family, mom, dad, and 2.5 kids, but your clan, which is a whole bunch of families led by the oldest male of that family, okay? It was not like you were just an individual that can move around to another state with no problem, right? It wasn't that way at all. Mobility for us is easy. We got cars, we got airplanes, you could go thousands of miles in just days. Abram's day, they had to walk everywhere. And he is being asked here to leave his father's house which means his clan or his tribe, his kindred. And again, God says, quote, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house. Now, Acts chapter 7, Stephen says there that Abram leaves after his dad died already. So his father's house then here doesn't refer to his father anymore or the building they lived in. It refers to all the relatives, everybody that's interconnected into this large clan. He's being asked to leave the people he knows and the language he knows to go elsewhere where he has no people and he might not be familiar with the language. The people in your extended family back then, they were the people that were bound to protect you, okay? They were the people who were supposed to keep you alive. They're like a shield around you because there'd be hundreds, sometimes thousands of them. And yet God's telling them to leave that. Step outside your protection. Step outside of your shield. Now, when we get to chapter 14... 
we're going to see what Jim Hamilton calls pirate kings. I can't say any of their names. You'll see that when I get to chapter 14. But you got these kings that have no regard for just war. They just go all around in hordes and they kill people and they plunder them and they also take slaves. So it was a dangerous world where you got these pirate kings going around. And here's the thing. What could protect you from that? Being part of a big clan. Those pirate kings aren't going to go after you. God's telling Abram, you're going out into this world apart from all of that. You're leading this wider network of the folks that would normally protect you. See, today we can't imagine this because we have the police, we've got the National Guard, we've got the army. That's why you feel like you could pick your family up and move anywhere, no problem. You don't feel any less secure or safe. That was not the world back then, okay? The world back then was warlords wreaking havoc. So when verse 4, which we're not there yet, but when verse 4 tells us Abram obeys, that is remarkable. This was a hard obedience. This is commendable. And this is why Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8 picks up this act of faithfulness and tells us this is what faith looks like. And this is what we're supposed to emulate. So Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance, he went out even though he did not know where he was going. He didn't know what it was like there, but he obeyed, and he's in the hall of faith, and we're supposed to live likewise, right? We're supposed to have that kind of faith and trust in God, where he's our shield, not our human protections and stuff like that. And what's interesting is when God speaks, obedience happens, especially when God speaks towards a new creation. You know, when God in chapter one said, let there be light, he didn't need light to cooperate with him. He didn't need the free will of light, to say, okay, God, I'm, I'm going to shine only because you told me to. No, he says, let there be light. Light is light, right? And when God speaks to dry bones and says, come alive, they come alive. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, he came out of that tomb, right? And when God called Abram and his dead pagan heart, just like he calls, called our dead hearts, when he calls, that heart comes alive. And then it becomes completely fixated on God and will live this kind of faithful life that we're seeing here. So we are seeing the salvation of an individual here. But starting in verse 2, we're going to see that this is way bigger than even that. God is actually beginning to fulfill that promise back in Genesis 3.15. He's beginning to reverse the curse, and you might not see it right away. So I'm going to read verses 2 and 3, and then I'm going to spend some time showing you what I'm talking about. So look at verses 2 and 3 with me. God says this to Abram. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, it is real easy to read this so fast and miss much of what I'm about to say. So first, let's notice that God makes some huge promises to Abram here. They're arranged in five I will statements. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. Five I wills, right? And of course, these are all going to be connected, and these five I wills are connected to promises that extend beyond Abram. For example, God not only is going to bless him, but he says, quote, you will be a blessing. In other words, Abram's going to bless others. And then he says, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, when you look at this promise here, and then when God repeats the promises in Genesis 15, um, you kind of see there's four elements to the promises being made to Abram. You got land, you got seed, 
blessing, and kingship. Land, seed, blessing, and kingship. And I know you see the land, seed, and blessing right away, but sometimes people miss the kingship part of this. And so I want to point that out to you, okay? Because it's not instantly visible, but if you look closely, it's there, okay? Abram, God's going to speak to Abram later, and he's going to say that kings will come from you, okay? Kings will come from you. Well, kings come from kings, don't they? That's one thing to keep in mind. And then the second thing, God told Abram he would make him into a great nation, and it's very interesting here. The word nation in Hebrew is goy. Some of you know where that's going. Goy just means nation, and it's the New Testament word for Gentiles, okay? The Hebrews translated into ethnos, which just means nations or Gentiles. We usually say Gentiles are non-Jews because the Old Testament presents people this way. You have Israel, and you have the goyim, the nations. And yet God is telling Abram that Israel is going to be a goy, right? It's going to be a goy. Normally, they're not called a goy. It's everybody else that's the goy, not Israel. Now, you might be saying, okay, but God's calling Israel a goy here or a nation. How does that relate to kingship? Because of what he says at the end. When God says all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, the word peoples is families, all the families of the earth, mishpaha, okay? Mishpaha, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, it's interesting because families here, he's talking about the other nations. In other words, compared to Abram and the nation that's going to come from him, all the other nations, including the superpowers, are described as wandering tribes in comparison. Okay, so yeah, they're going to be called the Goyim later, but God's saying in comparison, you're the Goy and they're just tribes. Okay, you are exalted above them and they will be blessed through you. Now, it's kind of interesting because the prophets pick up on this. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 17, when it's talking about the days of the Messiah, the future days of the Messiah, he says this. He says, should any of the Mishpaha families of the earth not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of armies, then rain will not fall on them. The next verse then says, if Egypt will not go up, Egypt, an empire, a nation is called a family in comparison to the kingdom that will be in Jerusalem. So in comparison to God's royal kingdom, everybody else are just wandering chiefs and tribes, okay? So that, that's, what's, that's what's happening there. And it's very interesting. So Abram becoming a nation and everyone else being blessed by him are just mere families in comparison. This points to the notion of sovereignty or authority or kingship. Remember, the lesser is blessed by the greater, Okay, so if the whole world is going to be blessed by Abram, then they can't be described as nations next to him. Next to him, he's the nation. They're just families. Okay, that is what's happening here. It's comparative language that shows that Abram's descendants will be in a kingly role. And what's really fascinating is that Old Testament writers later clearly saw this text this way, because when David is going to, when David's made king and then God makes a covenant with David, he's going to make the same promises to David that he makes to Abram. Okay, so let me read that. 2 Samuel verses 7, or chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. 2 Samuel, is anybody else hot in here? Okay, I'm cooking, but anyhow, all right, just must be that, uh, must words on fire. Anyway, okay, so 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. God says this, so now this is what you were to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. 
I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. So ruler, right? I have been with you wherever you've gone. I've destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Now, do you catch that, right? God tells David, I've called you from your old kind of uneventful life to be someone great. God then makes an I will statement. I'll make a great name for you. Hmm, heard that somewhere else, right? In fact, the only other one he said that to was Abram. I will make a great name for you. And then I'll establish a place. Again, a land. And then read down to verse 13, which I'll have it up here. God promises David that he's then going to give him seed. He says, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So let's add it all up. What are the elements in God's promise to David the king? Land, seed, blessing, kingship. For this reason, scholars recognize that this is clear royal language to David, and therefore it was royal language given to Abram. Now, liberal scholars will say that the Genesis writer wrote Genesis after 2 Samuel, and they were purposely taking that royal language and applying it to Abram. We know that's nonsense. Moses wrote Genesis long before David was born, but whoever wrote 2 Samuel recognized that the promise made to Abraham was kingly, and so he says that same promise is being made to David, okay? So anyway, these are all, when you put them all together, land, seed, blessing, kingship, these are all some really big promises when taken in their own right as individual promises, but we need to see what they're all saying collectively, together, especially how they're arranged, They're showing us that God is doing something more than just blessing Abram. And that's why at the beginning, I summarized the whole book of Genesis, okay, from the first 11 chapters, because I want you to see how this is actually set against all that. Do you remember, because I kept saying it, do you remember how many times I mentioned the Hebrew word for curse uh, was mentioned in the first 11 chapters? Do you remember? Yeah, so it's the the word uh, a ruler, okay? That's the, the word for curse five times in the first 11 chapters. Five times God cursed the serpent in three, chapter 3, verse 14. He cursed the earth in chapter 3, verse 17. The earth's cursed is mentioned again in chapter 5, verse 29. He curses Cain in chapter 4, verse 11. And he curses Canaan in chapter 9, verse 25. Now, these curses are all related to the outworking of the fall. See, the fall happens and then subsequent sin happens, right? So God gives the curses from the fall, but then he gives more curses to Cain and to Canaan, pretty much curses to the sin that's subsequent to the fall, that comes out of the fall, right? That is what the fall and sin leads to. It leads to curses. And there is no indication of the reversal of the fall in those first 11 chapters. You only have curses showing that the fall is spreading and its outworking is spreading. Let me ask you, what is the opposite of curse? Bless. Yep, blessing. Okay, so you have curses. The opposite is blessing. God curses as judgment. God blesses as grace. And how many curses in the first 11 chapters? Five. Go back and look at verses two and three of our chapter right now. How many times does God bless Abram? How many times does the word bless or blessing come up? This is no accident. 
Hebrew writers are always intentional with numbers. God is intentional with numbers. Seven days of creation, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, circumcision on the eighth day, right? The Lord being risen on the eighth day, meaning the first day of the week ends up being the eighth day. All this stuff. God, God's very, very intentional with this. Five times for curse in the first 11 chapters, and then immediately in two verses, five blessings. Exactly five to reverse that. God is going out of his way to show the careful reader, and by the way, we're supposed to be careful readers. He's going out of his way to show the careful reader that the call of Abram represents God beginning to do something about the curse. He is setting things up here to reverse the curse. Five curses before Abram's call, and then five after. It's done in an intentional contradistinction to the five curses that came before. So, of course, what you want to do is you want to, you want to look at these details of the call these blessings, and you want to see how it reverses the fall. And and so in the fall, man was separated from God by sin, kicked out of the Garden of Eden, expelled from God's garden, expelled from God's tree, okay, separated, driven from God's tree. And then Genesis kept telling us something that was very important about physical direction. They were expelled from Eden where? At the east entrance. And then humanity builds its community right outside. Cain commits murder, and so he's expelled even further east. And then the Tower of Babel is constructed where? In the east. It keeps showing us that movement away from God is east, okay, in the book of Genesis, and movement back towards God will be westward. Keep that all in mind, okay, as we get, when we get to the last part of this text. Even keep that in mind when you think of the temple or the tabernacle. You go back in the west direction, through a curtain with a cherubim. You end up inside the temple where there is a menorah, which is fashioned like an almond tree that always burns, tree of life, and then right next to the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is. Everything is always a reversal. Sin puts you out this way, but God's grace, he lets you back in the opposite way, westward. Remember that, please. (laughs) And so, anyhow, there's a lot of, but before we even get to that, there's some other cool contrast that I want you to notice. I already kind of showed how the five blessings are the reverse of the five curses. That's noticed by comparing the call of Abram again to the first 11 chapters as a whole. That's big picture. I want a narrow picture now. Let's narrow it down a bit. What happened? What's the big event that happened right before the call of Abram? Not the genealogies. Those aren't events. What's the big event? Tower of Babel, right? Kind of interesting. Now, how does that relate to the call of Abram? Well, it certainly does. But let me point out that the post-flood event of the Tower of Babel has a pre-flood, I guess you could say, version or parallel with Cain. Cain builds a city, okay, in opposition to God, and he names it after his son because he wants his son to be remembered, right? So he's giving a name. He wants his rebellion to be pretty much crystallized in human memory. Then you get after the flood. And what did the people of Babel say? They're building this city in defiance of God. In Genesis 11:4, they say, come, let's make a name for ourselves. We're going to make a name for ourselves by building the city, and we're going to build our access back to God. We're going to build a tower right into heaven. So this was in defiance of God's commands, and it was to make a name for themselves. Cain's city, which he made a name, destroyed in the flood. Babel's city, where they're going to make a name, destroyed when God confused the languages and scattered people. Whenever man in sin tries to make a name for himself, 
God judges. It's part of the curse, right? And humanity today is still trying to do this, aren't they? And we know a bigger judgment's coming. Just read the book of Revelation, read Matthew 24. It's coming and it's coming big, right? And so we know curse is still coming to a lot of people. But what we see here is that God thwarts people in their sinful post-fall works. Anytime they're trying to make a name for themselves or trying to get their own access back to God, God knocks it down. It's the curse. But by grace, God reverses the fall. Notice what it says. They tried to make a name for themselves. God won't let them. But what does God say here to Abram? I will make your name great. A direct contradistinction to what the sinner's done. You can't make your name great. God will make your name great. So what's interesting is if you look after the Tower of Babel, the next big event's Abram, but I told you there's a genealogy in between. Whose genealogy is it? Genealogy of Shem. Do you know what Shem's name means in Hebrew? Name. Okay, so it's the genealogy of name. So God destroys the city because they try to make a name for themselves. And the very next thing, here's the genealogy of name. That's how, they would, that's how a Hebrew person would read it. Then it gives you this genealogy that gets you all the way down to Abram, one of the descendants of this guy named Name. And then God tells that guy, I will make a name for you. So those people who did that thing in Babel, forget them. No, you, I will make a name for you. And then God will say the same thing to David later. It's a big deal when God's willing to make a name for someone, if he's going to make their name great. And again, just for our own application purposes there, if you are trying to make a name for yourself, you're acting like Cain. You're acting like the people of Babel. Only God will give us a great name. And he gives us a great name by uniting us with the one who has the name above every name. Jesus Christ. So if you're trying to make your name apart from him, you're acting like people of the curse, not people of the blessing. So knock it off. Now, Moses's point in recording all that is to show you that Cain and Babel represent the modus operandi of fallen humanity that's under the curse. Those people then, as we're going to see, are the seed of the serpent, continually rebelling against God and carrying on the spirit of Satan where they are trying to say we can be God or like God and we could be independent from God. That's what the seed of the serpent does. But the seed of the woman's different. We know the seed of the woman is the Messiah, but everybody who's saved is united with the Messiah. So we too, through him, will be called and will be seen as the seed of the woman. Okay, blessing for the seed of the woman. You got the blessed seed and you have the cursed seed, right? And so what's happening here is God is restoring access with Abraham back to God. When God saves someone, when he makes them part of the blessed seed, he's restoring access back to God and he aligns them, as I said, with the one name that God will exalt above every name. Now, the reason I say all this is because God's promise to Abram here is intentionally placing it in the theological context of the war between the two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And I'm about to show this to you, okay? Because remember, Moses is using these words intentionally. The first curse from God was against the serpent and his seed. The serpent and his seed are cursed. Well, look at the first part of chapter 12, verse 3 again. The language is very specific and intentional. God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. God cursed Satan and then Cain and then Canaan. And now this is being expanded to anybody who's against you, Abram. Okay, 
Anybody who's not with Abram is automatically aligned with the serpent, okay, whose seed is cursed. They will share his curse, which means they are of Satan, which Jesus says of the Pharisees, your father's the devil. None of this should be surprising to us, right? People who are not of God are of Satan, okay? And if you're going to resist Abram, then you're also seed of the serpent. It really blows my mind that modern Judaism pays very little attention to Genesis 3.15. They act like it's insignificant, like only you Christians make a big deal of it. But what's strange is if they would actually read the Old Testament very closely, this theme comes up again and again. The kings of Israel are said to crush the heads of their enemies. Hmm, what language is that? Crushing the head of the serpent. And and then not only the kings of Israel, but the nation itself gets to share in that. And then the New Testament tells us that God will crush Satan, not only under Jesus' feet, but under our feet. We get included into that. That is all. Like So you find this multiple times in the prophets, in the Psalms, and then even in the New Testament. It all points back to Genesis 3.15, right? It just just does, okay? Uh, And so, and not only that, so not only the crushing the head, but if God's cursing of the serpent... And then God's cursing of the enemies of Abram and the cursing of the enemies of Israel and the cursing of the enemies of the church also is linked back to the cursing of the serpent and his seed. It all builds out of Genesis 3.15. It's this big trajectory. Scholars like to use this fancy word called intertextuality for that. It starts there, and then other writers start picking up on that in the Bible, and you start to see it repeat itself and expand all over the place. This is the... I guess you could say one of the pivotal verses in the entire Bible. So we know that Abram's not the seed of the woman himself, but he's connected to the seed. The seed of the woman's going to come from him, and Abram being saved by faith is connected to that seed, to the Messiah. Okay, And so what God is doing is he's showing the reversal of the curse and fall. He's showing that with Abram. Those in Abram are blessed, which places them under the seed of the woman. Again, I'll bless those who bless you, right? Those against him are cursed. So they're with the seed of the serpent. And more could be said on this. And if you want to really get some good Old Testament teaching, there's this Nine Marks podcast um, called Bible Talk where two Old Testament scholars go through like three chapters at a time. Some good stuff, right? I'm just going to give you an abbreviated version of some of the stuff that, that they pointed out, okay? I want you to see just how God's promise to Abram actually deals with some of the, the difficulties of the curse, See, the curse in the fall brought these kinds of difficulties. Difficulty between the seeds, as some are of the woman, some are of the serpent. And so you have humanity, you know, at odds with each other. You have the man and the woman at odds with each other. We saw that she would try to domineer him, and yet he would rule over her. So you got that fight. You have pain and childbearing, which not only says it's going to be painful, but shows that having babies isn't going to be easy. So the curse even affects reproduction and and, and makes it very difficult, okay? And then difficulty with the land. Cursed is the ground because because of you. The land fights back. So think of all that and compare it to what God is saying to Abram. These blessings speak to those difficulties. One day, all the families of the earth will be blessed. They won't be fighting each other anymore. No battle between the seeds because only the blessed seed will remain, right? And then what about the, the, the uh, and same thing with husbands and wives, you know, we tend to fight each other all the time, but hey, one day, all the families of earth will be at peace with each other. And then what about reproductive difficulties? Abram, an old man with a barren wife, is going to have not just one kid, eventually he's going to have a lot. Nations, 
Kings will come from him. And God's blessing of Abram, I could overcome the curse of the difficulty and sometimes the impossibility of reproduction, right? And then the land, the land of Israel, how does God describe it? The land flowing with milk and honey. How does he promise it to Israel in the covenant? This land is going to just grow food for you without you even trying. You're going to be rich. You're going to be the head. The rest of the nations will be the tail as long as you're obeying. What God is promising to give Abram is not a land that's operating off the curse. If they obey, the land of Israel would actually function as if the curse were gone. So in Abram, in these promises, you have this picture where the very difficulties that come from the curse in the first 11 chapters are being shown to be reversed through him. And then, of course, ultimate salvation also because by faith we we will be saved. So it's just very interesting. All these details are intentional on the part of the Holy Spirit and Moses to show us that in Abram, God is beginning to reverse the curse. Everything that God does with Israel, when you're paying attention to the Old Testament, these things get even bigger. The tabernacle is even clearer than this. All these things get clearer. It all demonstrates a path back westward toward the Garden of Eden. And then the New Testament, how does the New Testament end? Where are we started? in a garden, but it's a city mountain garden, which is even better than the one we lost, with multiple trees of life, with leaves for the healing of the nations, and we'll be in the presence of God, immortal, things will be better than they ever were. Everything's meant to get us back there. And the very words of this covenant with Abram, Abram, well, the covenant's not made yet, but these promises made to Abram are all meant to show us that God is now meaning to take us back. He's finally going to reverse the curse. This is when the road starts getting paved, the road to final salvation. It's just amazing that God has the solution to overcome sin, okay, because he has to overcome the curse, and he overcomes it with blessing. And we see how that all starts here. Now, to make this even clearer, and I know I've been going for a while, I just need probably 40 more minutes of your time. Just kidding. Um, I want To make it more clear, I want you to see how Abram obeys. The last uh, few verses, verses 4 through 9, I could get through really quickly. Okay, God calls Abram. Does Abram disobey? Does Abram question? What happens? And even some of the things Abram does is going to be like type moments. And so let's look at this. Verse 4 begins with this profound statement. It says, Abram went as the Lord had told him. Remember, I already explained why this display of faith is remarkable. That's huge. He goes, this old man, he goes, right? God's effective call produces this effective result. Well, let's keep looking. Look at the rest of verse four all the way to the end of verse six. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran, okay? Most 75-year-olds would say, look, there ain't no way I'm walking hundreds of miles, but not Abram. He did this, right? So 75 years old when he left Haran, he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, which later we're going to find out is about 300 and something people, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, okay? So the sinful Canaanites were still ruling the land at that time. But this whole chunk that I just read gives us the details of his obedience, 75 years old, that's impressive, that didn't stop him. His wife, his nephew, um, Lot was probably raised like a son since his own dad had, had perished. And, and then Abram's possessions went with them. So it's telling us then he reached his destination, which again, by foot, I don't think any of us have ever walked that far. And then it tells us he stops in Shechem, which is an important detail because that's northern Israel. Okay, 
Just remember that. He stops in Shechem, northern Israel. He stops by a tree, an oak, which is an interesting detail. And then look at verse 7. It says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So it's not just showing the land anymore. I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So he's reaffirming the promise after Abram obeyed. It's your offspring that are going to have this land. That's who the nation's going to be that comes from you. And I'm, I'm going to give them the land. Now, this magnificent promise indicates everything I've said so far. But here's something for us to learn from this. How should we respond to God's faithfulness? Abram shows us he built an altar to the Lord. He worshiped him. Okay, The posture of our heart should always be that of worship toward God. He is good to us all the time. He is worthy to be praised all the time. And that is exactly what Abram did. And it's no accident, just throwing this out there, no accident that he built this altar of worship next to a tree. Okay, Again, this, we see in Abram this close relationship with God. Access to God is restored. That access comes by grace, right? And that grace paints a picture of heading back to the direction of God where this altar is built next to a tree. Again, signifying the tree of life. And I already mentioned that the tabernacle and the temple, same thing, where's the altar next to the menorah? Okay, it's all meant to paint that picture back into the presence of God. Well, it gets even better. Let's read verse uh, 8. It says, From there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there, and he called on the name of the Lord. Well, what's this telling us? Well, Bethel's in central Israel. So he's in the north. Now he's in the middle, central Canaan, right? And he settles for a while between two cities and names these two cities. Bethel and Ai. It tells us, these details are important, Bethel's on his west, Ai's on his east. Now, do you think this is a meaningless detail? What does Abram do in this spot? What does it tell us? He builds an altar and he worships God again. And additionally, it tells us he called on the name of the Lord. Abram at this point has given his life to God. He's calling upon Yahweh as his God. Now, the only other time before this that you see the phrase calling on the name of the Lord was back with Seth in Genesis chapter, at the end of Genesis chapter 4, where it says with Seth and some of his folks, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It's the same statement. And the location of where that was happening was likely right outside of Eden, right? With God's presence in the garden to the west. And then right outside, you have them calling on his name. And then to the east is Cain's ruinous city the city of, of sin, and, and all that kind of stuff. Now, you might say, okay, garden, Cain's city of sin, and then the people calling on the name of the Lord right in between them. They're worshiping him. There's likely an altar there and all that type of stuff. Well, what does our text tell us here? Abram builds this altar with Bethel to his west and Ai to his east. The word Bethel in Hebrew literally means the house of God, and the word Ai literally means ruins. You think this stuff is accidental? Moses wants you to pay attention to these details, okay? This is an undeniable picture of what God's call of Abram means. It is the reverse of the curse, not just the forgiveness of sins. It's God showing the, the, the whole picture up front. God will fix what humanity broke, all of it. Now, the next text, verse 9, finishes it. It says, then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. I bet you guys could figure out what direction that is south. So 
He, went, he was north, center, and now south. Abram, by doing this, is walking and stopping, more or less making his claim to the whole land. The whole land was going to be his, right? God keeps his promises. So, with all that said, what can we conclude from this whole text? Well, first, God's amazing. His word is amazing. God's salvation is comprehensive. I mean, think about it. I think we often act like Platonists, meaning people who think like Plato, not the stuff that's non-toxic that you eat, but the philosopher Plato, where the, the idea was that we think that, that all there is to salvation is God saves our soul. It assumes that this word world is so messed up that God can't fix it. And so our only hope is to be ghosts floating around on a cloud in heaven all day. That is not salvation as presented in the Bible. Salvation is shalom or peace. And that Hebrew word for peace means wholeness, harmony, restoration of all things. It's when God restores all things and brings the whole creation back into perfect harmony. And this is clear in the call of Abram. When God begins to pave the road to final salvation, he gives five blessings to reverse five curses. His blessings involve relationship, land, a name worthy of God, and restored access to God. That's what we've seen. That beats back all aspects of the curse. And ultimately, these blessings all point forward to eternal life because they keep pointing typologically back to Eden when life would have lasted forever. See, God's intent is to restore all that was lost and make it even better. And the nexus point of all of that is a single man, the seed of the woman, who will crush the work of Satan forever. So God keeps giving us genealogies. He doesn't stop here. He'll keep giving us genealogies to get us to that seed. He gets us, he gets to Abraham or Abram, where God says, This is my guy, right? And the path towards salvation begins here. The reversal of the curse begins here. It typologically begins here. The whole world will be blessed through this guy's seed, his offspring. Hmm. Seed. That should get us thinking back to the last time we heard that, Genesis 3:15, the seed. Of the woman. So Abraham's seed is going to be the same person, same seed of the woman, that single seed. And then Abram's line keeps going, and then you get to David. Could it be him? No. And God says, No, you will have a seed, and he will have a kingdom that never ends. So again, it's all pointing forward to this person who will be the nexus that makes it all happen, right? And so David then gives us the next part of the path or the road to salvation, okay? And, and, and the Messiah. David's son, his greater son, will not just rule Israel. The Psalms and the prophets start telling us he's going to rule everything. All things will belong to him, right? And so that is the seed of the woman. They tell us he will be born of a virgin. They tell us he will arrive for ministry in the year 26 AD. Daniel 9 makes that a fact. It says it'll be a certain amount of time from like when the decree to rebuild Jerusalem is made, um, it'll be 483 years till the time of the Messiah, till he shows up. That decree was made in 453 BC, which means he had to show up in 26 AD, which is exactly when he showed up to be baptized by John the Baptist. That's all in the prophets, is my point. It tells us he'd be born of a virgin. He'd be of the line of David. He'd be born in Bethlehem. It tells us when he would have to exist, right? It told us he would come as a lowly servant first to defeat sin by dying. And then he'll, he defeats death then by raising, by raising from the dead. He then saves the nations, the families of the earth, by grafting them in to Israel. And then eventually Romans tells us he saves Israel by regrafting them back into their own tree. And then he tells us 
We'll get everything new. Isaiah tells us this. Revelation tells us this. We will get a new heavens and a new earth where we'll have these new bodies that can never die and we'll be in the presence of our God forever. And it all centers on the work of that seed on Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, that new creation will put us in God's presence forever. No death, no tears, life eternal. It's a better version of the paradise that was lost. So, yes, at the end of the day, I'm saying that this text speaks about more than just Abram. It's about Christ ultimately. And Paul tells us this much in Galatians. Paul tells us that all this, these blessings, since they're reversing the curse, he says these were the gospel. Look, Galatians 3.8 says, Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles, the, the nations, the families of the earth by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed through you. I think it's fair to say the reversal of the curse with the blessing and salvation of God is the good news. I don't think Abram had all the details that we have about the ministry of Jesus, but those five I wills, that is good news. That is gospel, right? And God proclaimed that gospel ahead of time to Abram. All the nations will be blessed through you. And they are. It's all about the work of Christ. They're blessed through Abram's greater seed, which is the seed of the woman, Christ. And so God means to fix what humanity broke. And he shows us that it is a full and total salvation, not a cheap substitute that people often picture. And so if you were able to see all that in this text, then I've done my job. And so then the final question is, how can you apply this? This isn't a text to be applied. You can't do anything that's in this text. Don't go find a tree to build an altar next to. We are the temple of God, right? Just worship them where you're at. <laughs> you know, instead, this is a text I guess I could say this would be the application. Marvel at God. It's a text meant to direct your heart to a posture of perpetual worship and thanksgiving. So believer, go and worship your king. Thank him with all your being, with everything you've got. Unbeliever, understand this. There are only two seeds. And if you're not in Christ, you're of the seed of the woman and you are cursed. And those who are cursed will face the judgment and wrath of God. But God made a way for one to leave being cursed and to be entering into his blessing. If you come to Christ and believe on him with all of your heart, turn away from your sin and trust Jesus as Lord, you'll be forgiven of all your sins, you'll be saved, and you'll be part of the seed of the woman as well because you're united to the seed, which is Jesus Christ. So don't walk out of here still in your sin. If you do, you will face God's wrath and judgment. And we don't want that for you. We want you to face his, or to, to receive his grace mercy, and love. If you have any questions about that, come talk to me and I'll gladly walk you through it. That being said, we'll close in prayer and then uh, we'll be dismissed.